This morning's Old Testament scriptures from Lamentations 3, verses 22 to 26. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, the soul, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. In the New Testament, John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're studying 1 John. We've just heard John's gospel, and now I'd invite you to turn to the little letter, the first letter we have by him, one of three. The other two are just exceedingly tiny. But 1 John uh, is our area of study, and as you turn to it, uh, let me remind you of its theme and what we've learned thus far. Uh, John wrote his gospel, as he tells us at the end of chapter 20 of John's gospel, in order that reading of these things that Jesus said and did, that we might believe that he's the Christ. But he turns now in 1 John, as he tells us in chapter 5, verse 13, in order that those who have believed in Jesus might know that we have eternal life. And we might well ask, well, wait a minute. If, if we believed in Jesus, why should we doubt it? Why should we not just be told, did you pray a sinner's prayer? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? If so, never doubt your salvation again. But John gave us a warning early in his gospel that we could be deceived. At the end of John chapter 2, uh, we see Jesus has been in Jerusalem over Passover season, and we read that there were people in Jerusalem at Passover season who believed in his name when they saw the things that he did. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts and needed no one to tell him what was in the human heart. And then John 3 opens with exhibit A of someone who at one level has believed but not yet believed savingly, and that's Nicodemus. And so in his letter that we're studying, John gives us three tests that encompass the entire person. He gives us a, a doctrinal test that talks about a new way of thinking. It affects our minds. He talks about a relational test, a new way of loving it affects the affections of our hearts. And he talks about a new way of living, an ethical test, uh, or uh, the test that 
is seen out there as we live our lives, and that affects our will. So God's salvation is not an event in the past where we can say, oh, I was saved at this moment, though you may indeed be one of those blessed to know a moment when God's Spirit began to work in you and you realized you were His. That's a wonderful thing. But as the old Puritan said, I think when I was first with you, I quoted it, uh, we tend, if someone prays, uh, and they say, do I know I'm saved now? We tend to say, yes, don't ever doubt it again. When somebody prayed with a Puritan pastor and he said, am I saved now? That pastor would say, we'll see. And the reason was that they were expecting a person to grow in grace because salvation is a life. It is new life. It's what Paul described in Galatians 2 when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're looking at these tests, and last week we saw John developing the ethical test, that test of life. Where are you walking? Are you walking in darkness or in light? And now we turn this morning in chapter 2, beginning with verse 7, which I'm actually going to read now, uh, to the relational test, the affections of the heart has God begun to change our hearts. So look with me at 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As John develops this, this relational side of salvation, the change that God works in our hearts, I want again to just begin by noting, as I did last Sunday, how tenderly John is writing to these people. Uh, we, last week we noted that he began by saying, beginning of chapter two, my little children, I'm writing these things. He begins this by saying, beloved, I'm writing no new words. Down in verse 18, he writes, children, it's the last hour. Uh, 
Verse 28, now little children abide in him. Chapter 4, twice, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Beloved, let us, what am I saying? Brian gave a, a report on your search for a new pastor. I pray that God at the perfect moment will bring you someone who is deeply studied in the word, someone who is even eloquent in presenting the gospel to you, someone who lives the life of Christ with increasing beauty in your presence. But let me tell you, don't call anybody who doesn't love you and whose love for you is not manifest. That is absolutely crucial for every one of us in our relationships of life. We are to be the people marked supremely by love, and that's what we're going to be looking at now. And John is exemplifying it in his own ministry. When he says, my children, he's not writing to biological children, he's writing to the church. When he talks about young ones, youngsters, as we'll say, he's not talking to children who are young, he's talking to new Christians, men and women. When he writes to fathers, he's not just talking to men or to old people, he's talking to men and women who have been walking with the Lord for a long time. And when he says young men, he's talking to young men and women who are in the midst of the battle, not new believers, growing in Christ, but not yet at that place where those whom he calls fathers are. In other words, all that he is writing here, he is writing as to family. And this church flourishes to the degree that you see one another and treat one another with the full affection of brothers and sisters, not just biological brothers and sisters, but brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. So bear that in mind as the larger context as we now quickly look at this text. And there are four aspects that I want us to look at, and it just breaks down in sequence with the verses. In the first two verses that we read, we see John talking about this essential fact that marks the new affection of the heart. And as we'll see, this new commandment, which is ever old and ever new, is the commandment to love. And then in the next three verses, we see him illustrate that in this idea again of those who walk in darkness and those who walk in light. And then in the next three verses, we have this, what at first seems like a bit of a startling interlude where he suddenly starts talking little children, fathers, young men, and then he repeats it again. What he's doing here is he is writing to give us encouragement. And then the final verses, those familiar verses that we ended with, love not the world, know the things in the world. He's giving a warning. And if, you're, if you were listening carefully and not uh, thinking about the week to come or relitigating the week past, um, as we read, you should have been a little bit startled that Sarah read the most familiar verse in all, all the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And then John, who wrote those words, turns around and tells us here, don't love the world. Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, if we're to be godlike, aren't we to love the world if he loves the world? Why does he say don't love the world? So that's where we'll end with his warning. Okay, first of all, he simply lays out this statement. He says, first two verses, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. 
The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him. What's he talking about? How's it old? How's it new? All commentators on this are in agreement that in the larger context, he's talking about the call to love one another. And he will re-emphasize that through and through and through. And it's an old commandment because all the way back in the Old Testament, we're told, love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's an old command, this call to love. But it's also new, as we have noted before, because in John 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. And you can see them all get out there. They're whatever they use, styluses, <laughs> they're parchments. You know, new command, let's get this right. And he says that you love one another as I've loved you. And they must have thought, oh, we've, we've heard that before. It's just the old commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And honestly, I, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but for years, I used to think that he called it the new commandment even though it was the old one, simply because he was saying, this lies at the heart of the new covenant. By this, all men will know that you're my, my disciples by the love you have for one another. I learned the lesson. I hope I haven't told you this before. But if I am, if I have, look interested. Pretend that I haven't. Um, I was doing a, a, a project with my wife. And I'm a kind of perfectionist. And so I have this inner conversation always going on correcting myself and trying to improve it. And it's nice. I mean, I, I love, I'm my favorite guy. But nonetheless, <laughs> I'm constantly trying to, you know, make sure that I do things correctly. Well, we were working on this project together. So I'm talking to myself, and then I'd occasionally say to her, no, no, I think if you just do it here, that, that would even be better. And after about four or five times, she slapped her hand on the table and said, I am sick and tired of you loving me the way you love yourself. You're supposed to love me the way Jesus loves me. And I thought, that'll preach. That's, what it, that's why it's a new commandment, a new standard. So you all already knew that, but I didn't until my wife taught it to me. I don't think she was thrilled that all I got out of it was a new, a new sermon. But um, that's why it's new. It's a whole new standard. Jesus says, in effect, you may be so broken that you don't love yourself well. Don't lay that on other people. Look to me as a standard of how you love others, and then maybe, by grace, you'll be, be able to begin looking at yourself that way too and give yourself a break now and then, loving one another and loving even, by God's grace, ourselves if we are in Christ as he loves us. And so it's an old commandment, but it's ever new. And the other sense in which it's ever new, not just a new uh, standard, Jesus' self-sacrificial love, but it's also new because we have to do it and learn it over and over and over every day. I think that's what John Piper meant when, when he said once, um, I don't wake up a Christian, I have to become one all over again every day. Now, he didn't mean he thought he lost his salvation, but he just meant that we wake up and our first thought is of ourselves and what we want and what we desire to do and all the rest, and our tendency is to see other people as existing in order to help us achieve our goals. And so I'm willing to sacrifice others in order to achieve what I desire, whereas Christ sacrificed himself in order to make us what God meant for us to be. That's what he's calling us to with this new 
standard. Okay, and now he illustrates it. And he simply says, and, and again, remember, brother here doesn't just mean biological brother, though it should mean that too, but he's talking about your brothers and sisters in Christ. He said, if you hate your brother, you're walking in darkness. You're not the real thing because God is light. In him is no darkness. We saw that last week or the week before. And if you're walking in the light, you cannot hate one another. You're going to love one another. So he says, I'll illustrate this by saying, don't think in the abstract. Think about people that maybe you don't like. Remember, the Bible never tells us we have to like everybody. We, we can't. At least I've found <laughs> that I can't. Um, we can like most people. I never trusted Will Rogers for saying I never met a man I didn't like. We should never meet somebody we, we don't love, but uh, I'm not sure Will had met some of the people that I've, that I've met. But we are to love. Now, what does that mean? And why is it so devastating if we do not love? I, I, something has happened to the air conditioning. Thank you for opening the doors. It's getting hotter and hotter. This should have been a time for preaching revelation uh, if it gets any hotter. Here I am talking about love, and I ought to use the... The heat, thanks, Bill. Get the air moving. Um, the devastating consequences of not loving come back on our own heads. If we don't walk in the light, to love people does not mean that you get misty when you think of them. It doesn't mean that, that you, know, you always enjoy their company. To love somebody biblically is to will for them the good that God has for them and to be willing even to work for their good even if they haven't worked for yours. If we are not willing to do that, if we are willing to hold grudges, and I'll just ask you right now, is there anybody in your life who has hurt you to such a degree that you are sort of waiting, hoping to hear or to read that something bad happened to them. It is devastating to you. It won't hurt them. It will destroy you. The root of bitterness will destroy you. Let me give you real quickly one biblical example of it. Do you remember a guy in the Old Testament named Ahithophel? I've never met a child named Ahithophel, so I don't think it's a big popular name, even in Israel. But Ahithophel was David's, King David's chief advisor, the wisest man in the whole kingdom. And so he always turns to Ahithophel for advice. Well, remember when David's son Absalom rose up against him in rebellion and David had to flee Jerusalem. Ahithophel went over to Absalom and he told Absalom, you need to go after him right now while he's disoriented and depressed and he hasn't been able to gather his troops. Go after him. You can catch him. You can kill him. And when Absalom didn't do it and David got away, Ahithophel went home, put his affairs in order, and killed himself. I used to read that and think, that's a little bit of an overreaction. If, if every time somebody didn't take my advice, I killed myself, I would have died a thousand deaths. What was the deal? The deal was this. 
If you go to the genealogies toward the end of First Kings, the genealogies of David's mighty men, you will find that in the retinue of protectors who stood around David to give their life for him was a man named Eliam, who was Ahithophel's son and the father of Bathsheba with whom David committed adultery and then took her, that good man, his warrior, Uriah, her husband, and to try to cover over the fact that she'd gotten pregnant. David brought him back, tried to get him drunk, send him home, and he said, I won't go sleep with my wife while the king's army is in the field. And so David sent him back into battle with orders that he carried, knowing he wouldn't read them because he was an honorable man, telling Joab, put him in the fiercest part of the battle, right up against the wall where the archers are shooting down, and then pull everyone back from him so he'll be killed. He had brought shame and disgrace and adultery and murder upon the family of Ahithophel. And rather than confronting David the way that Nathan the prophet later did, Ahithophel just put away a dagger with David's name and thought, I'm going to wait, and the moment is going to come when I can get him back for what he's done to me and my family. And in the end, he did nothing to David. He destroyed himself. Brothers and sisters, if there is anyone with whom you have allowed something to grow up between you where you cannot wish them well, You need to go to them and sit down and say, I I need to confess something to you. I, I can't bear this in my heart anymore before the Lord. Because it will destroy you if you choose to walk in darkness rather than in the light. And then he gives word of encouragement. And I'll just briefly, he says, he he repeats it. He does couplets, and I'll just give it once. What does he say to new Christian? He says, You know that your sins are forgiven. You know that your sins are forgiven. And you know that God is your Father. He is Abba. I'd I'd studied Hebrew in seminary. I I knew Abba was this intimate term. But whenever I say it or, or read it, I have a picture of one day in Ben Yehuda Square in Jerusalem or on Ben Yehuda Street where they had outdoor cafes. I was sitting eating and watching this beautiful, darling little girl over there with her mom. She had her long, curly hair, and she was eating and dancing and playing. And a big, strapping Israeli IDF guy in his, uni- in his camo gear and with, uh, with an Uzi, I guess, across his back, walked up, big, powerful guy, looking around, And all of a sudden, that little girl looked, and her face lit up, and she went, Abba, 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 and raced to him, leaped into his arms. He held her and kissed her, and she kept saying, oh, Abba. I thought, that's it. That's what he's telling us. The newest Christian knows that their sins are forgiven and that this great and glorious God of holiness has invited them as his little ones to call him Abba, Father. Then he turns to the fathers and mothers, mature Christians, 
And he says that you have known him both times. He says, you know him who is from the beginning. You've known him as father. You've known your sins are forgiven, but you've walked through all kinds of seasons, times when perhaps you wondered, Lord, where are you? Where'd you go? I'm, I'm hurting here. And like the psalmist, you cried out, Lord, wake up, come to my aid, help me. And you've walked in those times of intimacy and joy and have gone, if we can even say it, beyond the simple Abba into a relationship of deep love. I'll never forget one time when my father was a very old man. They were living in Montreat, North Carolina, and I was near there in Carolina, and I decided to surprise them, and I drove up, to, uh, up home and went in, and mother was there. She said, your dad's out hiking somewhere in the mountains, and dad came in, his face was glowing. That's all I can describe. And he looked at me for a moment as though he didn't recognize me, and then he started laughing, and he said, oh, John, son, Jesus is more real to me than you are. That's what he's talking about for the fathers. You know him who is from the beginning. This great God, you know. And then, young men, young women, you who are in the battle, he says you're battling, you're winning because you are people of the word. How do we win the way that Jesus won in the wilderness? With the word. Jesus, every time Satan tempted him, said, it is written, it is written. That is the sword of the spirit that drives the enemy from the field. And so the warning, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that's not of the Father, it's of the world. How are we to love the world rightly, and how do we love it wrongly? God so loved the world that what? He gave. He gave what was precious in order to redeem the world. When we love the world for its goods and services in order to take from it, then we're loving it wrongly. It's lusting after the things of this world and still thinking that all things exist to satisfy my needs and desires rather than my now being in service of the Lord in offering myself for those who are broken and needy and hurting. And he says, don't love the world because those things that you're lusting after are not of the Father but of the world. And don't love it because it's passing away. It's passing away. Look at just you, very visibly present, great-looking young midshipman. Just a solemnizing word. I was once your age. <laughs> just reflect on that for a moment. I've I've been really good all my life about eating carefully and working out. And look where it got me. <laughs> 74 years old, I'm just, I'm old. The world and its desires are passing away. And we have a choice of living for what lasts or of giving ourselves away to what cannot last, what's passing. Live for what lasts. Know the Father. Know him 
It was from the beginning until at last you long to step into his presence and see him finally face to face. Father, how we thank you that you are our life. You are our joy and our peace. All good things are from you. And so may we learn to love as Christ has loved us. We would not have bad self-image. We would simply be self-forgetful and stop obsessing over ourselves and our wants and our desires and begin learning to look to those whom you've entrusted to us. Would you take a moment in the silence and respond to whatever God is saying to you in the heart?